Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today to another World Audiobook. So happy to have you along for the ride. And what a ride it has been the last couple of weeks. We've just, the download numbers have been going up. Uh, we've boosted the likes on Facebook. I don't know if you saw that post if you follow Another World on social media, but uh, we're up over 2,000 uh, likes on the Facebook page now. So that is super exciting. Love having you guys along for the ride, and I love hearing from listeners. I actually got a little note dropped. Uh, it was a recommendation on the Facebook page, so that was pretty cool. So I just wanted to read that uh, to you guys. So it says, if you're not listening to Another World Audiobooks, what are you waiting for? Consider this your invitation. I love to read, but I can't always make the time. Another World Audiobooks has allowed me to experience great books on the go. So check it out. You won't be disappointed. So thank you very much for that, for that recommendation. Uh, glad you guys are enjoying it. If there's anything that you're not enjoying as much, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and remember, if you're tired of downloading the audiobooks piece by piece, you can go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress/free, and the links are always in the show notes, and uh, get uh, in the entire audiobook in its full, unabridged form. So just go ahead and pop over there and do that if you want uh, to not have to download each chapter individually. Well, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the audiobook. So now, without further ado, I give you Tarzan. Chapter 9. Man and Man Tarzan of the Apes lived on in his wild jungle existence, with little change for several years, only that he grew stronger and wiser, and learned from his books more and more of the strange worlds which lay somewhere outside his primeval forest. To him, life was never monotonous or stale, there was always Pisar, the fish, to be caught in the many streams and the little lakes, and Sabor, with her ferocious cousins, to keep one ever on the alert and give zest to every instant that one spent upon the ground. Often they hunted him, and more often he hunted them. But though they never quite reached him with those cruel, sharp claws of theirs, yet there were times when one could scarce have passed the thick leaf between their talons and his smooth hide. Quick was Sabor the lioness, and quick was Numa and Sheeta, but Tarzan of the apes was lightning. With Tantor the elephant he made friends. How? Ask not. But this is known to the denizens of the jungle, that on many moonlit nights Tarzan of the apes and Tantor the elephant walked together, and where the way was clear Tarzan rode, perched high upon Tantor's mighty back. Many days during these years he spent in the cabin of his father, while still lay, untouched, the bones of his parents and the skeleton of Kayla's baby. At eighteen he read fluently, and understood nearly all he read in the many and varied volumes on the shelves. Also he could write, with printed letters, rapidly and plainly, but script he had not mastered, for though there were several copy-books among his treasure, there was so little written English in the cabin that he saw no use for bothering with this other form of writing— though he could read it laboriously. Thus, at eighteen, we find him, an English lordling who could speak no English, and yet who could read and write his native language. Never had he seen a human being other than himself, for the little area traversed by his tribe was watered by no greater river to bring down the savage natives of the interior. High hills shut it off on three sides, the ocean on the fourth. It was alive with lions and leopards and poisonous snakes. Its untouched mazes of matted jungle had as yet invited no hardy pioneer from the human beasts beyond its frontier. But as Tarzan of the Apes sat one day in the cabin of his father, delving into the mysteries of a new book, the ancient security of his jungle was broken forever. At the far eastern confine a strange cavalcade strung, in single file, 
over the brow of a low hill. In advance were fifty black warriors, armed with slender wooden spears with ends hard-baked over slow fires, and long bows and poisoned arrows. On their back were oval shields, in their noses huge rings, while from the kinky wool of their heads protruded tufts of grey feathers. Across their foreheads were tattooed three parallel lines of colour, and on each breast three concentric circles. Their yellow teeth were filed to sharp points, and their great protruding lips added still further to the low and bestial brutishness of their appearance. Following them were several hundred women and children, the former bearing upon their heads great burdens of cooking pots, household utensils, and ivory. In the rear were a hundred warriors, similar in all respects to the advance guard. That they more greatly feared an attack from the rear than whatever unknown enemies lurked in their advance was evidenced by the formation of the column, and such was the fact, for they were fleeing from the white man's soldiers, who had so harassed them for rubber and ivory that they had turned upon their conquerors one day and massacred a white officer and a small detachment of his black troops. For many days they had gorged themselves on meat, but eventually a stronger body of troops had come and fallen upon their village by night to revenge the deaths of their comrades. That night, the black soldiers of the white man had had meat aplenty, and this little remnant of once powerful tribe had slunk off into the gloomy jungle toward the unknown and freedom. But that which meant freedom and the pursuit of happiness to these savage blacks meant consternation and death to many of the wild denizens of their new home. For three days, the little cavalcade marched slowly through the heart of this unknown and untracked forest, until finally, early in the fourth day, they came upon a little spot near the banks of a small river, which seemed less thickly overgrown than any ground they had yet encountered. Here, they set to work to build a new village, and in a month, a great clearing had been made, huts and palisades erected, plantains, yams, and maize planted, and they had taken up their old life in their new home. Here, there were no white men no soldiers, nor any rubber or ivory to be gathered for cruel and thankless taskmasters. Several moons passed ere the blacks ventured far into the territory surrounding their new village. Several had already fallen prey to old Sabor, because the jungle was so infested with these fierce and bloodthirsty cats, and with lions and leopards, the ebony warriors hesitated to trust themselves far from the safety of their palisades. But one day, Kulonga, a son of the old king, Mabonga, wandered far into the dense mazes of the west. Warily he stepped, his slender lance ever ready, his long oval shield firmly grasped in his left hand close to his sleek ebony body. At his back his bow, and in the quiver upon his shield many slim, straight arrows, well smeared with the thick, dark, tarry substance that rendered deadly their tiniest needle-prick. Night found Kulonga far from the palisades of his father's village, but still headed westward, and, climbing into the fork of a great tree, he fashioned a rude platform and curled himself asleep. Three miles to the west slept the tribe of Kerchak. Early the next morning the apes were astir, moving through the jungle in search of food. Tarzan, as was his custom, prosecuted his search in the direction of the cabin, so that by leisurely hunting on his way, his stomach was filled by the time he reached the beach. The apes scattered by ones and twos, and threes in all directions, but ever within sound of signal of alarm. Kayla had moved slowly along an elephant track toward the east, and was busily engaged in turning over rotten limbs and logs in search of succulent bugs and fungi, when the faintest shadow of a strange noise 
brought her to startle attention. For fifty yards before her, the trail was straight, and down this leafy tunnel she saw the stealthy advancing figure of a strange and fearful creature. It was Kalonga. Kayla did not wait to see more, but turning, moved rapidly back along the trail. Close after her came Kalonga. Here was meat. He could make a killing and feast well this day. Only hurried, his spear poised for the throw. At a turning of the trail, he came in sight of her again, upon another straight stretch. His spear hand went far back. The muscles rolled lightning-like beneath the sleek hide, outshot the arm, and the spear sped toward Kayla. A poor cast, it but grazed his side. With a cry of rage and pain, the she-ape turned upon her tormentor. In an instant, the trees were crashing beneath the weight of her hurrying fellows, swinging rapidly toward the scene of trouble in answer to Kayla's scream. As she charged, Kulonga unslung his bow and fitted an arrow with almost unthinkable quickness. Drawing the shaft far back, he drove the poison missile straight into the heart of the great anthropoid. With a horrid scream, Kayla plunged forward upon her face before the astonished members of her tribe. Roaring and shrieking, the apes dashed toward Kalonga, but the wary savage was fleeing down the trail like a frightened antelope. He knew something of the ferocity of these wild, hairy men, and his one desire was to put many miles between himself and them as he possibly could. They followed him, racing through the trees for a long distance, but finally, one by one, they abandoned the chase and returned to the scene of the tragedy. None of them had ever seen a man before, other than Tarzan, and so they wondered vaguely what strange manner of creature it might be that had invaded their jungle. On the far beach by the little cabin, Tarzan heard the faint echoes of the conflict, and knowing that something was seriously amiss among the tribe, he hastened rapidly toward the direction of the sound. When he arrived, he found the entire tribe gathered jabbering around the dead body of his slain mother. Tarzan's grief and anger were unbounded. He roared out his hideous challenge time and again. He beat upon his great chest with clenched fists, and then he fell upon the body of Kayla and sobbed out the pitiful sorrowing of his lonely heart. To lose the only creature in all the world who had ever manifested love and affection for him was the greatest tragedy he had ever known. What though Kayla was a fierce and hideous ape, to Tarzan she had been kind, she had been beautiful. Upon her he had lavished unknown to himself all the reverence and respect and love that a normal English boy feels for his own mother. He had never known another, and so to Kayla was given, though mutely, all that would have belonged to the fair and lovely Lady Alice had she lived. After the first outburst of grief, Tarzan controlled himself, and, questioning the members of the tribe who had witnessed the killing of Kayla, he learned all that their meagre vocabulary could convey. It was enough, however, for his needs. It told him of a strange, hairless black ape with feathers growing upon its head, who launched death from a slender branch, and then ran with the fleetness of Bara the deer toward the rising sun. Tarzan waited no longer, but leaping into the branches of the trees, sped rapidly through the forest. He knew the windings of the elephant trail, along which Kayla's murderer had flown, and so he cut straight through the jungle to intercept the black warrior, who was evidently following the torturous detours of the trail. At his side was the hunting knife of his unknown sire, and across his shoulders the coils of his own long rope. In an hour he struck the trail again, and coming to earth, examined the soil minutely. In the soft mud of the bank of a tiny rivulet, he found footprints such as he alone in all the jungle had ever made, but much larger than his. His heart beat fast. Could this be the training of a man? One of his own race? 
There were two sets of imprints pointing in opposite directions. So, his quarry had already passed on his return along the trail. As he examined the newer spore, a tiny particle of earth toppled from the outer edge of one of the footprints to the bottom of his shallow depression. Ah, the trail was very fresh. His prey must have but scarcely passed. Tarzan swung himself to the trees once more, and with swift noiselessness, sped along high above the trail. He had covered barely a mile when he came upon the black warrior standing in a little open space. In his hand was his slender bow, to which he had fitted one of his death-dealing arrows. Opposite him, among the little clearing, stood Horta, the boar, with lowered head and foam-flecked tusks, ready to charge. Tarzan looked with wonder upon the strange creature beneath him, so like him in form, and yet so different in face and color. His books had betrayed the negro, but how different had been the dull, dead print to this sleek thing of ebony pulsing with life. As the man stood there with taut-drawn bow, Tarzan recognized him not so much as the negro, as the archer of his picture book. A stands for archer. How wonderful! Tarzan almost betrayed his presence in the deep excitement of his discovery. But things were commencing to happen below him. The sinewy black arm had drawn the shaft far back, Halter, the boar, was charging, and then the black released the little poisoned arrow, and Tarzan saw it fly with the swiftness of thought and lodge in the bristling neck of the boar. Scarcely had the shaft left his bow, ere Kalonga had fitted another to it, but Halter, the boar, was upon him so quickly that he had no time to discharge it. With a bound, the black leaped entirely over the rushing beast, and, turning with incredible swiftness, planted a second arrow in Halter's back. Then Kulonga sprang into a nearby tree. Horter wheeled to charge his enemy once more, a dozen steps he took. Then he staggered and fell upon his side. For a moment, his muscles stiffened and relaxed convulsively. Then he lay still. Kulonga came down from his tree. With a knife that hung at his side, he cut several large pieces from the boar's body, and in the center of the trail he built a fire, cooking and eating as much as he wanted. The rest he left where it had fallen. Tarzan was an interested spectator. His desire to kill burned fiercely in his wild breast, but his desire to learn was even greater. He would follow this savage creature for a while, and know from whence he came. He could kill him at his leisure later, when the bow and deadly arrows were laid aside. When Kalonga had finished his repast, and disappeared beyond a near turning of the path, Tarzan dropped quietly to the ground. With his knife, he severed many strips of meat from Horta's carcass, but he did not cook them. He had seen fire, but only when Ara, the lightning, had destroyed some great tree, that any creature of the jungle could produce the red and yellow fangs which devoured wood and left nothing but fine dust, surprised Tarzan greatly and why the black warrior had ruined his delicious repast by plunging it into the blighting heat was quite beyond him. Possibly Ara was a friend with whom the archer was sharing his food. But, be that as it may, Tarzan would not ruin good meat in any such foolish manner, so he gobbled down a great quantity of raw flesh, varying the balance of the carcass beside the trail where he could find it upon his return. And then, Lord Greystoke wiped his greasy fingers upon his naked thighs and took up the trail of Kulonga, the son of Mubonga, the king, while in far-off London, another Lord Greystoke, the younger brother of the real Lord Greystoke's father, sent back his chops to the club's chef, because they were underdone, and when he had finished his repast, he dipped his finger-ends into a silver bowl of scented water and dried them upon a piece of snowy damask. All day Tarzan followed Gulonga, 
hovering above him in the trees like some malign spirit. Twice more he saw him hurl his arrows of destruction, once at Dango, the hyena, and once at Manu, the monkey. In each instance, the animal died almost instantly, for Kolonga's poison was very fresh and very deadly. Tarzan thought much of this wandered method of slaying, as he swung slowly along at a safe distance behind his quarry. He knew that alone the tiny prick of the arrow could not so quickly dispatch these wild things of the jungle, who were often torn and scratched and gored in a frightful manner as they fought with their jungle neighbors, yet as often recovered as not. No, there was something mysterious connected with these tiny slivers of wood, which could bring death by a mere scratch. He must look into the matter. That night, Kulonga slept in the crotch of a mighty tree, and far above him crouched Tarzan of the apes. When Kulonga awoke, he found that his bow and arrows had disappeared. The black warrior was furious and frightened, but more frightened than furious. He searched the ground below the tree, and he searched the tree above the ground, but there was no sign of either bow or arrows or of the nocturnal marauder. Kulonga was panic-stricken. His spear he had hurled at Kayla and had not recovered, and now that his bow and arrows were gone, he was defenseless, except for a single knife. His only hope lay in reaching the village of Muponga as quickly as his legs would carry him. That he was not far from home he was certain, so he took the trail at a rapid trot. From a great mass of impenetrable foliage, a few yards away, emerged Tarzan of the Apes to swing quietly in his wake. Kulonga's bow and arrows were securely tied high in the top of a giant tree, from which a patch of bark had been removed by a sharp knife near to the ground, and a branch half cut through and left hanging about fifty feet higher up. Thus, Tarzan blazed the forest trails and marked his cachets. As Kulonga continued his journey, Tarzan closed on him until he traveled almost over the black's head. His rope he now held coiled in his right hand. He was almost ready for the kill. The moment was delayed only because Tarzan was anxious to ascertain the black warrior's destination, and presently he was rewarded, for they came suddenly in view of a great clearing, at one end of which lay many strange layers. Tarzan was directly over Kulonga as he made the discovery. The forest ended abruptly, and beyond lay two hundred yards of planted fields between the jungle and the village. Tarzan must act quickly, or his prey would be gone. But Tarzan's life training left so little space between decision and action when an emergency confronted him that there was not even room for the shadow of a thought between. So it was that as Kalonga emerged from the shadow of the jungle, a slender coil of rope sped sinuously above him from the lowest branch of a mighty tree, directly upon the edge of the fields of Mubonga, and ere the king's son had taken a half-dozen steps into the clearing, a quick noose tightened about his neck. So quickly did Tarzan of the Apes drag his prey back that Kalonga's cry of alarm was throttled in his windpipe. Hand over hand, Tarzan drew the struggling black until he had him hanging by his neck in mid-air. Then, Tarzan climbed a larger branch, drawing the still-thrashing victim well up into the sheltering verdure of the tree. Here, he fastened the rope securely to a stout branch, and then, descending, plunged his hunting knife into Kalonga's heart. Kayla was avenged. Tarzan examined the black minutely, for he had never seen any other human being. The knife with its sheath and belt caught his eye. He appropriated them. A copper anklet also took his fancy, and this he transferred to his own leg. He examined and admired the tattooing on the forehead and breast. He marveled at the sharp, filed teeth. He investigated and appropriated the feathered headdress, and then he prepared to get down to business. For Tarzan of the Apes was hungry, and here was meat. Meat of the kill, 
which jungle ethics permitted him to eat. How may we judge him? By what standards? This ape-man with a heart and head and body of an English gentleman, and the training of a wild beast. Tublat, whom he had hated and who had hated him, he had killed in a fair fight, and yet never had the thought of eating Tublat's flesh entered his head. It would have been as revolting to him as his cannibalism to us. But who was Kulonga, that he might not be eaten fairly as Horta the boar, or Bara the deer? Was he not simply another of the countless wild things of the jungle, who preyed upon one another to satisfy the cravings of hunger? Suddenly a strange doubt stayed his hand. Had not his books taught him that he was a man? And was not the archer a man also? Did men eat men? Alas, he did not know. Why then this hesitancy? Once more he essayed the effort, but a qualm of nausea overwhelmed him. He did not understand. All he knew was that he could not eat the flesh of this black man, and thus hereditary instinct, ages old, usurped the functions of his untaught mind and saved him from transgressing a worldwide law of whose very existence he was ignorant. Quickly he lowered Kalonga's body to the ground, removed the noose, and took to the trees again. Chapter 10 The Fear Phantom from a lofty perch, Tarzan viewed the village of thatched huts across the intervening plantation. He saw that at one point the forest touched the village, and to this spot he made his way, lured by a fever of curiosity to behold animals of his own kind, and to learn more of their ways, and view the strange lairs in which they lived. His savage life among the fierce wild brutes of the jungle left no opening for any thought that these could be aught else than enemies. Similarity of form led him into no erroneous conception of the welcome that would be accorded him should he be discovered by these, the first of his own kind he had ever seen. Tarzan of the Apes was no sentimentalist. He knew nothing of the brotherhood of man. All things outside his own tribe were his deadly enemies, with a few exceptions of which Tantor, the elephant, was a marked example. And he realized all this without malice or hatred. To kill was the law of the wild world he knew. Few were his primitive pleasures, but the greatest of these was to hunt and kill, and so he accorded to others the right to cherish the same desires as he, even though he himself might be the object of their hunt. His strange life had left him neither morose nor bloodthirsty, that he joyed in killing, and that he killed with a joyous laugh upon his handsome lips, betokened no innate cruelty. He killed for food most often, but, being a man, he sometimes killed for pleasure, a thing which no other animal does. For it has remained for man alone among all creatures to kill senselessly and wantonly for the mere pleasure of inflicting suffering and death. And when he killed for revenge or in self-defense, he did that also without hysteria, for it was a very business-like proceeding which admitted of no levity. So it was now, as he cautiously approached the village of Mubonga, he was quite prepared either to kill or be killed should he be discovered. He proceeded with unwanted stealth, for Kulonga had taught him great respect for the little sharp splinters of wood which dealt death so swiftly and unerringly. At length he came to a great tree, heavy laden with thick foliage and loaded with pendant loops of giant creepers. From this almost impenetrable bower above the village he crouched, looking down upon the scene below him, wandering over every feature of this new, strange life. There were naked children running and playing in the village street. There were women grinding dried plantain in crude stone mortars, while others were fashioning cakes from the powdered flour. Out in the fields he could see still other women hoeing, weeding, or gathering. 
All wore strange protruding girdles of dried grass about their hips, and many were loaded with brass and copper anklets, armlets, and bracelets. Around many a dusky neck hung curiously coiled strands of wire, while several were further ornamented by huge nose-rings. Tarzan of the Apes looked with growing wonder at these strange creatures. Dozing in the shade, he saw several men, while at the extreme outskirts of the clearing, he occasionally caught glimpses of armed warriors, apparently guarding the village against surprise from an attacking enemy. He noticed that the women alone worked. Nowhere was there evidence of a man tilling the fields or performing any of the homely duties of the village. Finally, his eyes rested upon a woman directly beneath him. Before her was a small cauldron, standing over a low fire, and in it bubbled a thick, reddish, tarry mass. On one side of her lay a quantity of wooden arrows, the points of which she dipped into the seething substance, then laying them upon a narrow rack of boughs which stood upon her other side. Tarzan of the Apes was fascinated. Here was the secret of the terrible destructiveness of the archer's tiny missiles. He noted the extreme care which the woman took that none of the matter should touch her hands, and once, when a particle spattered upon one of her fingers, he saw her plunge the member into a vessel of water and quickly rub the tiny stain away with a handful of leaves. Tarzan knew nothing of poison, but his shrewd reasoning told him that it was this deadly stuff that killed, and not the little arrows, which were merely the messenger that carried it into the body of its victim. How he should like to have more of those little death-dealing slivers! If the woman would only leave her work for an instant, he could drop down, gather up a handful, and be back in the tree again before she drew three breaths. As he was trying to think out some plan to distract her attention, he heard a wild cry from across the clearing. He looked and saw a black warrior standing beneath the very tree in which he had killed the murderer of Kayla an hour before. The fellow was shouting and waving his spear above his head. Now and again, he would point to something on the ground before him. The village was in an uproar instantly. Armed men rushed from the interior of many a hut and raced madly across the clearing toward the excited sentry. After them trooped the old men and the women and children until, in a moment, the village was deserted. Tarzan of the apes knew that they had found the body of his victim, but that interested him far less than the fact that no one remained in the village to prevent his taking a supply of the arrows which lay below him. Quickly and noiselessly, he dropped to the ground beside the cauldron of poison. For a moment he stood motionless, his quick, bright eyes scanning the interior of the palisade. No one was in sight. His eyes rested upon the open doorway of a nearby hut. He would take a look within, thought Tarzan, and so, cautiously, he approached the low, thatched building. For a moment he stood without, listening intently. There was no sound, and he glided into the semi-darkness of the interior. Weapons hung against the walls. Long spears, strangely shaped knives, a couple of narrow shields. In the center of the room was a cooking pot, and at the far end a litter of dry grasses covered by woven mats, which evidently served the owners as beds and bedding. Several human skulls lay upon the floor. Tarzan of the apes felt each article, hefted the spears, smelled of them, for he saw largely through his sensitive and highly trained nostrils. He determined to own one of these long-pointed sticks, but he could not take one on this trip, because the arrows he meant to carry. As he took each article from the walls, he placed it in a pile in the center of the room. On top of all, he placed a cooking pot, inverted, and on top of this he laid one of the grinning skulls, upon which he fastened the headdress of the dead Kulonga. Then he stood back, surveyed his work, and grinned. Tarzan of the apes enjoyed a joke. But now he heard outside the sound of many voices, and long mournful howls, and mighty wailing. He was startled. Had he remained too long? Quickly he reached the doorway, and peered down the village street toward the village gate. 
The natives were not yet in sight, though we could plainly hear them approaching across the plantation. They must be very near. Like a flash, he sprang across the opening to the pile of arrows. Gathering up all he could carry under one arm, he overturned the seething cauldron with a kick and disappeared into the foliage, above just as the first of the returning natives entered the gate at the far end of the village street. Then he turned to watch the proceedings below, poised like some wild bird, ready to take swift wing at the first sign of danger. The natives filed up the street, four of them bearing the dead body of Kalunga. Behind trailed the women, uttering strange cries and weird lamentation. On they came to the portals of Kalunga's hut, the very one in which Tarzan had wrought his depredations. Scarcely had half a dozen entered the building, ere they came rushing out in wild, jabbering confusion. The others hastened to gather about. There was much excited gesticulating, pointing and chattering. Then several of the warriors approached and peered within. Finally, an old fellow with many ornaments of metal about his arms and legs, and a necklace of dried human hands depending upon his chest, entered the hut. It was Mubonga, the king, father of Kalonga. For a few moments all was silent. Then Mubonga emerged, a look of mingled wrath and superstitious fear writ upon his hideous countenance. He spoke a few words to the assembled warriors, and in an instant the men were flying through the little village, searching minutely every hut and corner within the palisades. Scarcely had the search commenced than the overturned cauldron was discovered, and with it the theft of the poisoned arrows. Nothing more they found, and it was a thoroughly awed and frightened group of savages which huddled round their king a few moments later. Mubongo could explain nothing of the strange events that had taken place. The finding of the still warm body of Kalunga, on the very verge of their fields, and within easy earshot of the village, knifed and stripped at the door of his father's home, was in itself sufficiently mysterious, but these last awesome discoveries within the village, within the dead Kalonga's own hut, filled their hearts with dismay, and conjured in their poor brains only the most frightful of superstitious explanations. They stood in little groups, talking in low tones, and ever casting affrighted glances behind them from their great rolling eyes. Tarzan of the apes watched them for a little while from his lofty perch in the great tree. There was much in their demeanour which he could not understand, for of superstition he was ignorant, and of fear of any kind he had but a vague conception. The sun was high in the heavens. Tarzan had not broken fast this day, and it was many miles to where lay the toothsome remains of Horta the boar. So he turned his back upon the village of Mubonga, and melted away into the leafy fastness of the forest. Alright, thank you guys so much for listening today. It's because of you listeners that I keep doing this. I love doing this, and I just so appreciate the fact that you guys listen. The other thing that would make a huge difference is if you just tell somebody about the podcast. I'm sure that you know somebody who would enjoy free audiobooks. So if you can just tell them about the podcast, turn them on to Another World Audiobooks, that would help the podcast so much. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.